0: Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions, and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. <laughs> Hello there, I'm with Bast founder Lynn Hilton today. Lynn, as always, it's lovely to see you. How are you, and how's the Perthian corner of the globe that you're coming in from?
1: Yes, so I'm in Perth, Western Australia, which is my hometown, having a visit. And uh, it's probably taken me this two weeks to get acclimatized to being A, in nice weather. <laughs> and be just getting over the jet lag. Yeah. So it's been lovely to visit home.
0: Mm, Well, it's lovely to be with you today. And we've teamed up to discuss a topic which many voice teachers may come up against when they're working with their clients. And that is selecting or designing the best vocal exercises for a response to what they perceive as a vocal fault in the moment. So firstly, why do you think this is sometimes a struggle for us?
1: I think it depends very much on your training and who your student is. Uh, if, if I were sort of to think back to when I first started, I didn't really understand functionally what was going on with the voice. And so the only exercises I really had access to were the ones that my singing teachers gave me. And so I would be doing those exercises and then realise that they weren't really helping everybody. They helped some people, but not everybody. So I think for teachers who've not actually found out how to actually understand what's going on functionally, they may not have the tools to then go in and correct what they're hearing. So they might hear and understand, you know, if someone's breathy or someone's yelly uh, or they're getting a crack through the passaggio, but they don't really understand functionally what's going on and so therefore don't have the tools to go in and counteract whatever that functional issue is.
0: Mm. Another question would be, when we are selecting our exercise, what are the components that we might need to consider?
1: Mm. So in the course, I when I was thinking about how to deliver this, Um, and starting to think more from a functional point of view, I decided to divide the functional aspect up into a few areas. So the first one was the larynx. So is the larynx too high, too low? Um, Then the vocal folds, what kind of closure have we got? Is it too weak? Is it too strong? Or is it excessive? The airflow, is there too much air coming through? Not enough. Um, intrinsic muscle coordination is that happening in a balanced way and in a well-coordinated way extrinsic muscles are they interfering with the process and then sort of zooming a little bit more out it's like what's the rest of the body doing and how's that helping or hindering the voice so posturally if your neck's forward that's going to hinder the voice box if you're slouched or if you're, you're not going to be able to take, you know, a decent breath. And, and so I kind of zoom in on all of these areas and then figure out is the problem related to one of these? And when I have identified which one I think it is, then I start to think about the different exercises that can help. It's not just exercises either. it's Sometimes it's instructions and the instructions might be... Um, a thinking instruction or a doing instruction, you might get the student to visualise themselves, you know, in the the mirror while they're doing the process. So, for instance, if it's postural, it might help them to be in a posture that's more conducive to allowing the larynx and the air management to be comfortable and easy. So, yeah, I, I think there's a whole we call it sort of the toolkit, um, a whole range of different things, but it always starts first off with what's happening functionally and which area um, are we focused on initially. And, of course, the problem is <laughs> we're singing is quite often there's more than one thing happening at the same time. And so it's a matter of trying to ascertain is this what I'm hearing a, a symptom of a functional issue or is it a side effect Uh, or is it secondary you know that's the other thing is it could be a secondary thing
0: and is there is there a right place to start or do you just have to pick somewhere and and just hit the ground running and go for it i usually start
1: with the larynx um so the thing is that with the vocal folds if they're not coordinating in a balanced manner uh they can't do it if the larynx is in the wrong position. So, for instance, if someone has a tendency to bring the larynx up as they go through the transition or through the passaggio, which is a very common thing, quite often the larynx will track the higher notes. So the higher you go, the higher the larynx goes, the lower you go, the lower the larynx goes. So if the larynx is too high or too low, the vocal folds can't do what they need to functionally. So when the larynx is too low, the vocal folds are in the wrong position to close correctly to adduct. When the larynx is too high, then that's going to hinder the vocal folds from closing and creating the upper pitches as well. So it will impact the frequency at which the vocal folds vibrate, which then will have an impact on the pitch as well as the tone quality. So I generally start with the larynx. Yeah. Mm.
0: And when we're looking at scale patterns, there are so many different directions, ascending, descending, broken arpeggios, the long scale, uh, pentatonics. There are so many to choose from. So what is appropriate in certain situations? And it's going to vary quite massively. Uh,
1: so for me, when it comes to scales, there's two Uh, foci. So the first one is functional. So are we using it as a tool to help the vocal folds do a particular thing. And I like to make my scales very simple in the beginning when I'm working with technique. And then the second approach is musical. And obviously, me coming from a jazz background, I'm used to all sorts of weird and wonderful scales. That's very appropriate to my genre. If you're doing a lot of riffs, you know, that R&B style, then certain um, scales are going to be appropriate there too. Aside from the major scale and the minor scale, there's going to be pentatonics, minor and major, and some of the more modal scales. So I always separate those two things and I try not to mix it up in the beginning. So I feel like the scales, you know, I was once... um, told well the, the scales are sort of like the dumbbells you know when you go to the gym you learn the form and you'll start with just the rod and you learn how to do it correctly and then you start adding weights onto it so the scales are the weights so you learn the form and i might use something like the long scale as a way of learning form to get through the transition Um, to be in that lower area, middle area and the upper area of your registers uh, just to get that sense of getting in and out. And then I want to add some weight in and so I'll start to use arpeggiated scales uh, and then repeats and sustains. And then depending on what my goal is will depend on which ones I use. I like to use descending scales other than as a variation, because obviously, when we're singing melodies, we go up and down. uh, It's quite a useful one if somebody's in a very uh, TA dominant or strained, yelly vocal coordination. And it helps release if you start above the transition. So say for females around D5 descending and for males around G4 descending. It seems to cause, and I don't know the exact mechanics of it uh, or whether it's psychological, um, it seems to cause the voice to immediately go into that correct coordination as opposed to when you're ascending, where if you start in the chest and if somebody tends to be TA dominant or um, chesty, yelly, it's very easy to just hang on to that. Our muscle and just keep that going as far as it can and push it up. Whereas if you start above, you automatically have to release and get the CT muscle involved. Otherwise, you're not going to get that pitch. So I don't understand exactly why it works. But um, it does seem to help somebody who's straining to just start above. Uh, yeah, so it just depends on what I'm trying to do. If I'm trying to engage more of that upper register into the lower register, you know, transition into the lower register, then I'll start an ascending above. Sorry, yes, a descending scale, uh, top down. If I'm trying to get somebody who hasn't got very much TA involved and I want to get more of that chest resonance, I might start um in the chest register and then move up. So then I'll do an ascending scale. And I also, I'm also i also very selective about whether I'm using a five note, an arpeggio or a long scale.
0: Mm. And why is that? What is the difference between using, obviously other than the distance you're covering, what's the difference between using maybe a three tone to a five tone to then stretching it out onto the octave?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the three-tone and five-tone are very similar to me. Uh, I might go to a three-tone if someone's struggling to, to um, actually deliver the five-note scale, especially online. If I've got a student who isn't very good at pitching um, in an cappella setting, then I might just try three-notes. If I'm just working one very specific thing area, then I might keep it to three notes and not confuse the body into having to incorporate too many notes. So I'm always thinking about, well, what's my goal here? Is it just to get the experience, or is it to build on it, or is it to and develop it, or is it to help the the voice live in that area, or is it to get it closer to singing melody? So between the three and the five note, not a huge difference, Um, but the the five note to the octave. So as soon as you are going over an octave, um, you're challenging the voice very quickly to have to negotiate between one register and another or go through the transition. Uh, So I usually don't do that unless I feel the voice is ready to do that because... I work on the principle that I want to keep the student at a success rate of sort of 90 to 95% of the time. And I don't want to set their exercises up in a way that they're constantly failing because then that's what the neuromuscular system starts to learn is the failed way of doing it. Yeah, so um, the the arpeggiated one uh, will be when the voice is a bit better developed. That might take, you know, a couple of weeks or it might be immediate, it just depends on the singer. But what I do differentiate is the long scale. I feel that's such a useful one. It's it's over an octave. It helps the voice transition really quickly. People get the experience of going through the transition. Um, you've got quite a chunk of that long scale generally in the chestier resonance region, for want of a better word, describing that lower register. Um, and also you're kind of just visiting, you know, you're going in and out, you're not um, staying there for any length of time. So the, the shorter the vocal, uh, dis- sorry, the shorter the intervallic distance, the more challenging it can be through the transition for a voice. So I tend not to use like chromatic scales or even... Um, major scales or minor scales uh, in sequence because if you're going through the transition and somebody hasn't learnt that or their voice hasn't learnt that coordination, it's quite, you know, small increments and it's it's a very refined movement uh, and uh, coordination that has to go on between the TA and the CT muscles um which is the thorough muscle and the cricothorid muscles so that transition has to happen there has to be a handover at some point but it gets a little harder when you're doing it just in those small semitone increments or tone increments so I tend not to do those kind of scales so like that three tone and five tone scale I probably wouldn't do that around the transition for a beginner singer mm. but when I've got a singer that I really want to challenge uh and you know I feel like that got really good balance and now we want to really find out how well does the voice know how to do this i'll then pull out these shorter scales
0: yeah because mm. they localize don't they they stay in one area quite uh for that longer time because they're not spread out um I, and I also feel like a lot of the time it's playing a game of opposites so if you're hearing that somebody is is being a little too chesty we go in the opposite direction and we are Uh, being a little more heady. Uh, And it's it's kind of going the opposite direction. If you feel like we're ascending and it's getting tough, let's descend into it. Um, So yeah, rolling the dice and playing that, that opposite hand. And here's an example of some of the scales that we've mentioned there, starting with the ascending octave arpeggio. With an added repeat. With a repeat sustain into a descending octave arpeggio, then we have the five tone scale and the long scale. We've, we've looked at kind of identifying the fault that you feel like you're hearing and then placing it into a scale pattern. So, how do you go about choosing your sound that you use in pairing with that scale? So, whether it's an SOVT or a particular vowel? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, SOVTs are great to just get the voice ready to start working on the actual exercises. So, I usually do SOVTs at the beginning of any lesson. if. the singer hasn't already done some just to get the ligaments stretched and ready to go i mean there's two uh theories about that certainly so if you look into sports medicine in the when i was coming through uh you know in my 20s and 30s having a stretch was really important to do before you started and now they're actually saying you shouldn't and so I have heard Ingo Gotize a sort of question whether maybe we need to look at that as well in the voice. Do we need to do those stretches? But at the moment it seems to me, just anecdotally, that the voice does respond well when you do some general SOVTs and stretching the vocal folds, getting the vocal fold vibration balanced without having to worry about consonants and vowels. So I will use the SOVT then. And obviously, if I'm working with a sick voice, I use SOBTs a lot more. Uh, then I utilise both the consonant and the vowel as tools. They're separate tools, but they work together and you know they can really complement and help each other out. So with the consonant, uh, the benefits of using different consonants will be related to the airflow or lack of airflow. So am I looking for a consonant that increases airflow or decreases airflow? Am I looking for a vowel that has a tendency to put the voice more in a headier space or into a chestier space or resonance? I'm not very consistent with my terminology. (laughs) So you'll hear me use all sorts of terms, uh, but at the moment I tend to use lower middle and upper register, but I know some people like the terms chest resonance or voice and head voice, and, and it totally makes sense to me from the, what it feels like as a singer. Um Yeah, so if I have a singer who I want to get more airflow, then I'll go for a fricative sound or a sound that has more airflow, so a f or a sh or a s- or you know something like that, depending um, on exactly how severe I think the issue is. And you were talking earlier about this. You know, you're constantly counteracting something. I call it seesawing. So you know, we seesaw. When we first start, we go to the extreme other side. But constantly, we get into a place where we're doing this refined balance. And and our voice is constantly doing that balance. That will never stop. We're never going to just be still. Our voice is very, you know, it's a moving target for all sorts of reasons. And so we're constantly doing that balance, but we want to get to that place where we can just make that refined counter um, movements. So uh, in the beginning, I might use a very extreme airflow sound if I feel that's necessary, or very extreme sound that reduces airflow. So NG is absolute, you know, there's no airflow there going through the mouth at all. Um, and then I might move to b or a m, so I always say it like that because that's the sound we. You know, I don't say b or m because that's not the sound we're creating. So ba, b, b, boo, or a ma, moo, and. The M's are really great because you can add a little creaky sound onto that, and that really encourages vocal fold closure. There's no way of making that sound without your vocal folds coming together. And so um, it might be that I go, well, I'll start with an M sound, uh, add on an ah R or an ah, A because they're going to give their voice more chance of getting good vocal fold closure, and um, a chestia resonance. So uh, then if that's not working, then I can just very quickly add on the instruction. You know what? Add a little creaky cry sound to that. You know, mm, mm. and then I know that they're engaging the right vocal fold muscles to get good adduction. So the problem with the voice is, you know, we... Can't see exactly what's going on or feel, you know, we a lot of it, the feeling is even just um, referred uh, feelings, you know, it's not, which is why people have this, um, uh, so certainly in the science world, you know, so against the idea of calling it chess voice. But a singer goes, totally means something to me because that's where I feel it. I mean, okay, in theory, that's not what, so, you know, what's happening functionally, but that's where I, I the sensation is. So the only way that we can really teach is through sensation. And once the, vocal, the vocalist starts to feel what that's like, what does, what's the difference between vocal folds being weaker, more open and stronger, more closed? And so we give these funny little sounds that you know we make in order to functionally experience um, our vocal folds doing what we want them to do. And it will be extreme in the beginning, and then after a while you go less and less because the vocal folds know what they need to do So, because we're it's all motor skill really, isn't it? We're teaching the nervous system and the muscle system how to do this job.
0: Mm. And then how then do you add on? The quality that you would like the singer to use, whether that's within the SOVT itself or within the, the vowel or open sound, whether you choose like a twangy sound, a cry or a sob or a hoot, where do you pair that in the exercise?
1: I don't know if I've ever really thought about it in that way. It's not that I don't do that. I just don't think about it like that so are you talking about uh when someone needs something from a stylistic point of view
0: could be a stylistic yeah or like using the emotion of the song that you're going that they're having the the struggle in I guess to kind because of, I guess with exercises it can be very stark or a little stagnant without the emotion involved so how, what's that character feeling in that moment in the song and how can we implement that in the exercises? They, they just feel like an extension of that, that repertoire.
1: Well, I don't. Um, I think I work very much from a functional point of view and then I don't do that sort of thing until starting to sing songs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've used uh, that twang or frangal sound more to get that belted sound, but actually now... Nowadays I use uh, formant tuning in order to get the belted sound. So I think probably that's more a reflection of the kind of people that I work with because I tend to work with artists I'm not in the music. I don't work with musical theatre, so it's not about characters. Uh, it is about emotion, but the um, artist makes a decision about the emotion. What I might do is, if somebody is being really breathy all the time because they want to be, you know, sound vulnerable or uh, you know something more intimate, then we might have a discussion with regard to how that might be affecting the voice um, health-wise, and. Does it need to be all the way through? And can there be some alternative ways of approaching uh, certain parts of the song so that it's not breathy all the way through? So, those it's sort of more that kind of discussion as opposed to adding things in. But I suppose if somebody needed that, I would, I could, you could easily add that into an exercise. I don't have an issue with that, but it's just not the way that I operate. I have done the the whingy child voice, you know, who wants something. mom. You know, I've done that. And um, also another one which I got from one of my teachers years ago, which was um, calling out for ice cream. Ice cream, you know, and just needing to project it right over to the other side of the street for someone who's not used to projecting their voice in that way. So I, I might start more with the spoken um, approach. And then put it into, uh, you know, find some sort of a a little pattern, intervallic pattern that might work with something like that. And I have actually in the past done some specific exercises to help encourage the yodel um, for someone who wanted to do more country so I did sort of make up an exercise so you know that took you from that old chest and flip into head and back into chest yeah but I think nowadays I just don't tend to work with singers who need that so much Um, Mm. so I'm probably not the best person to ask that question for
0: but it goes to show how imaginative we can get with these scales and it doesn't have to be a particular kind of linear pattern but it's just lots of thought and designing and playing which i think can be a bit of a relief for us sometimes um, and also using parts of melody as your exercises as well it doesn't necessarily have to be note to note keys on on the piano
1: exactly you don't have to use scales um you can use little excerpts from, say, a one or two-bar melody that works well. Kim Chandler, for instance, she has her fun and funky CDs and there's a whole lot of exercises based around instrumental riffs and it just changes key. And so you're learning the riff but you're learning it and you're doing it all in different keys as well. So, And I used to just take little extracts from um, songs sometimes to help people as we were transitioning more towards singing songs and getting uh, the voice used to working over a melody because obviously scales, and this is why we're saying I separate how I use scales from the technical versus the musical. Uh, so when we're getting closer to wanting to develop more within a context of a melody, then we need to start to find melody extracts, because obviously there's lots of different rhythmic changes, different um, melodic patterns, ascending, descending and so on. Yeah. Um, So the using the scales now for when I'm working with an artist is a very, very small part. And what I might do is I might actually even make it up. If, If I've warmed up their voice, we've done a couple of scales and then they generally with. With artists, I tend to go straight into whatever song they're working on, and then I might, if they're having they're struggling around a particular passage, I'll just extract that melody and make a pattern out of it, take away the rhythm, add in a sound, and then um, go down and up and above. So I go below and above wherever the normal uh, key is, and then usually end. In the key that they're singing the song in and then I go there we go you know you are now singing that melody perfectly well so now we just need to add in the rest which is the rhythm and you know and I'll also actually going back to the sound so in the beginning when I'm working specifically with function I will find very specific consonant vowel combinations to help me counteract Whatever the issue is that I've found, but when I'm working with song, I'll I'll extract the vowels and consonant patterns that are problematic, and and then I'll create a some sort of exercise out of that. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, for instance, in, you know, someone's voice is flipping on an ooh sound like the moon. You know, so they can't say "moon" uh, without flipping or yelling. And so I'll think, okay, let's do a moo sound, and then I'll create um, either a scale pattern based on the melody, or I'll go back to one of the the functional scales. Like usually at that point, um, I'll use I use the octave arpeggio scale a lot, and then I'll what I'll I'll do is I'll start with just a straight up and down octave arpeggio then I'll do an octave arpeggio with a repeat at the top note and then a repeat and a sustain and then a sustain until the voice starts to really feel what it's like to be in that area on that sound and then I might actually take the melody extract you know the rhythm so all we get is just the actual melody notes and then I will put in The first and second sounds of each word, depending on what they are. Or I'll take the vowels and I'll just add a a consonant, which I think will help the voice stay balanced. So it might be a B. So whatever the words are, um, I'll just add a B in front of each syllable.
0: Mm.
1: And then, and I'll also, if there's a problematic consonant, I'll Use that one all the way through. So just replace all of the beginning of the syllable with even even with um, open vowel sounds. Like you know, if the the word is I, then I'll. But their voice is falling apart. Then we might add a B in first. And so, in the melody exercise, they're doing by, and then eventually, of course, I remove the B as their voice starts to feel where um, things are
0: so I thought it would be helpful to implement this into a scenario uh, and I thought let's just go ahead with breathiness and we're going to make a few more podcast episodes based on picking the best exercises for certain vocal faults that we perceive so with breathiness what things would you consider first before you choose your exercise
1: Mm. so the first thing I look at is how old is the person and what sex are they? So a teen female, the breathiness might actually just be a part of their vocal development. So that's where the the anatomy is at. Uh, So the vocal folds may not be closing as well at that point in the development of the voice. So I tend not to Spend a lot of time. I mean, if it happens easily, if I give them some exercises and then their vocal folds coming together really easily, then great. I will continue down that track. But if they seem to be really struggling with the different exercises that I've given them, I might—I don't know—give them three or four. And if all of them are coming up with the same results, I might go to myself. Well, you know what? This might be just where their voice is at the moment from a developmental point of view. So I'm not going to force it. So that's the first thing. The next thing um, that one needs to really consider is, is the breathiness a symptom of some pathology that's going on? And that's a little bit harder, obviously, because you won't know until you actually get a good gander, as we say here in Australia, (laughs) and having a good look uh, at the uh, vocal folds. But there are some signs. So like if if the vocal faults stay like that, no matter what exercise you give them, if there's been a history of um, problems before, uh, if this is certainly if this has been a change, you know, from the normal sound that the person can produce, then um, we might be thinking, oh, is this actually something to do with pathology? Because if you've got, I don't know, some sort of lesion there then the vocal folds can't get come together properly and, and you might get a breathier sound. Or if there's some sort of weakness in the muscles, then you might get breathiness. But you do have to take a good history, so then I'd be looking at the history. And if you are worried, then obviously an ENT is the next stop to get um, scoped so that because that's the only way to really know So, there are two things that I think about first um, when I'm working with singers. If I feel like it's none of those situations, then um, I will, and and actually, even if I do think it is, I will still give the singers some exercises which encourage vocal fold closure. And the first thing I like to do is tell the student that, you know, your vocal folds open and close. And I get them to experience the open experience, which is just breathing, and then closed. If they do a and keep the vocal folds in that closed position, then they start to recognize, oh, these are my vocal folds open. And now this is when they're closed. Because most of us haven't differentiated that. You know, it's not something that in normal everyday life we'd ever have to learn. And Not in the same way that we sort of learn it with our fingers, you know, um, this is them open and that's when things fall through our fingers and then that's them closed and that's when we can hold on to something. Well, The vocal folds do the same thing. It's just that they generally do it just automatically. So that's one of the first things that I do is get the, the singer to experience vocal folds open, vocal folds closed. And then I help them differentiate between closed fully and no air coming through and ah, where they're partially closed. And now there's some air coming through. So then I might do some very um, short exercises, which are more spoken, where they experience what it's like to create a tone or sound with vocal folds closed. So I might start with that closed position which is generally when you do if you go into that position with a nice neutral low larynx your vocal folds are really closing very well you know from bottom to top so I might get them to start there puh, uh, puh, uh, puh, mm, puh, mm, and start to make ah and um mm sounds so that they get the feeling of what that's like and I might even get them, to put their hands at their throat so they can feel the vibration, because when the vocal folds are closing well, uh, there will be a vibration. So those are the two things that I will start off with. Because if a singer's never had that experience or understanding or can differentiate the difference between open and closed, then it's going to be really difficult to do it at pitch. So I do all of this, just creating sounds. Um, and then I would start to add the odd pitch here in the, you know, just random pitches just to see if they can maintain it. And I might start off in the lower end of their range and then creep up and just see what happens. And then I'll start adding scales, and that's when I might do a three-tone just to get that sense of well, what's it like to make three notes in a row up and down while still maintaining closed vocal folds Uh, through the pitch and then the other thing is I I will ask them you know how does that feel what do you think what you know before you do that um, is that a comfortable feeling a non-comfortable uncomfortable feeling is it a strange sensation or is it a welcome sensation because if the mind isn't on board so I've worked say for instance with females who come from the Classical choir background, and they say that they want to learn how to sing jazz and be more contemporary. But um, they come in and they're speaking like this when they're you know talking to me, so they've never really experienced vocal you know good vocal closure in the way that a contemporary sound is. You know their TA is totally disengaged, Um, so. I then actually have a discussion about, well, this is such a very different uh, vocal coordination to even when you're speaking, and you might have to just play around with this at home and practice it and get used to it before we start really engaging in song. Because the problem often happens is when people start to get a chestier resonance than they've not experienced before, then they go, you know, the... Total extreme, and now we end up with someone who ends up with TA dominance. That happens quite often, especially with the uh, the more CT dominant female voice. Um, yeah, so I'll be I st- always start off with sounds like um, B's and G's and um, creaky, uh, creaky M sounds. They're very good for engaging a little bit more vocal fold closure. So I do a combination of particular consonants and vowels, and then add in the creaky cry sound. And it's usually a slow process because uh, it can be really jarring for somebody internally if they've never heard their voice that loud before. And what happens, of course, it's like anything. If you've got more mass coming together, you're going to have a louder sound. And in your head, it sounds really loud. Um, I can remember that transition for myself uh, and thinking it sounds so ugly. And maybe it isn't attractive in the beginning because you're not in control of it. Uh, but you have to reassure somebody emotionally as well. And it's obviously a little different with young people People, um, they're not necessarily and and there I would definitely agree. You know, with your approach, which is to make it more of a game and find ways to engage. That is, you know, here's a funny voice that we're going to make and make it more of a game, and we're going to be a cartoon character. Maybe find somebody that they, you know, they like. Um, yeah, so um, it's all about making sure that you're engaging from a functional point of view, the right muscles to get that core closure and then just repetition, really, and putting it into different scenarios. So you start with the scales and you might do ascending, descending, then broken arpeggios. You might then take it out into a long scale. Um, In that instance, actually, quite often with breathy people, Going into a long scale is just breathy, breathy, breathy. So there's no point in doing the long scale. Um, So I might actually go the kind of in the opposite direction where I start smaller scales and then widen out. And then, of course, putting it into um, lyrics, into the context of a melody. Now, another really good um, strategy there is, is to get the person to sing the song uh, at a, at like a, um, you know, which is like singing, speaking at pitch, sorry, speaking at pitch. So they get the sense of going up and down with the pitches, but they're like talking it. That's assuming that they talk with more uh, TA engagement. Course, if they don't, then that may not work at all. (laughs) And quite often, actually, with people who are breathy, the um, straw is not very good um, or useful tool. It depends. I mean, if you can get them to engage more vocal fold closure by adding a little creak or crying to it, that's great. But sometimes they just, as soon as they have the straw in their mouth, they go straight to this very weak vocal Mm -hmm. fold closure and it. It's counterintuitive, so I, I might not even do straw.
0: I guess the straw would be the the one if you feel like there's excessive airflow coming through and you've got the biofeedback of the bubbles and they're getting splashed and they're soaked. You forget to have told them to bring a bib <laughs> to class. <laughs> uh, it's that's quite good for that. T- Tissues, <laughs> Mac, <laughs> umbrella, anything you want, need an umbrella <laughs> for the blooming lip trills, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, thought, I cannot talk about the old COVID thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so for, yeah, for excessive air, I am I might have to find some sort of reduced cons- uh, airflow consonant. Bs, I love Bs. Ms are really great too. Bs and Ms. And And to be honest, from a functional point of view, I don't really go much past those particular sounds because they do exactly what i need them to do very quickly and then i've always got somewhere to take them back to sort of that becomes like they you know once they've got it that becomes the home home base and then we work out from there so the sound might become a per sound might become a worse sound you know that they're all on the lips um so i i, I think about the consonant in terms of degrees of how much or how little airflow is going on and i'll move the voice in that direction depending on what i'm trying to achieve Mm.
0: yeah and these lovely things are covered quite extensively in, in the course, aren't they? On the BAST course. Um, and as you said, there are so many scenarios that we could cover in, in, in the sub genre. So we'll be back with more tips on designing and selecting vocal exercises. So if you have anything that you want us to discuss, then you can get in touch with us via our social media platforms, for example. So do do that and we will certainly listen. And uh, Lynn, it was so nice to see you. And I hope you have a lovely day and I'll see you soon.
1: Thank you very much, Alexa. So, are you one of the many singers who want to teach others but just don't have the confidence to get started, or are you already teaching and looking to upskill, fill some knowledge gaps, or refresh? Well, the Bast 20-hour course is here to help you build your confidence, knowledge, and skills. And you can find out more about the course and our next starting dates at our website, bast, B-A-S-T, Training.com. On the Bast course, we're going to help you understand functional anatomy of the instrument and how it applies to singing, and we're going to help you learn how to assess and identify the tools that you need to help someone sing well and safely. We're going to even introduce you to a little bit of the science behind sound making so you can significantly improve a singer's voice and it will seem like magic. We're going to help you master the art of effective student-centred teaching and how to get into a business and how to get it up and running and much, much more. By the end of the course, you will understand your potential as a singing teacher far better and you'll feel confident to charge to teach people how to sing or increase your rates. You're also going to have a wonderful and supportive network of like-minded singing teachers to hang out with. So go to the podcast description for a link to the website where you can find out more about the course and what we offer and... And if you want to talk to someone in person, feel free to book one of the free consultation calls so we can talk to you directly and answer any of your questions. Looking forward to seeing you somewhere in the BAST community.